Who knew that Numbers was going to be so surprisingly applicable? Indeed, obscure, perhaps to us, passages that speak directly to our lives individually, but also together as God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, the new Israel. Our passage this morning, Numbers chapter 25, is directly referenced in Psalm 106 and at least twice in the New Testament. This is, in fact, one of those passages that is a ready entry gate to understanding the whole of what the Bible reveals so that we might see it. Before we read it, let's pray. Oh Lord, as we have worshiped in song, we now worship in study. Glad for your word to be available to us, that in freedom we might be able to read it, to hear the exposition of it, to have it proclaimed, that your word might take hold of our hearts and change us in every aspect of our being. Cause us to leave this place different than when we came because we were with you. Send your Holy Spirit to bear witness to the reading and preaching of your word and help us then to pray also for the pastor, the preacher who is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, from the mountain heights above to the valley depths below. The past couple chapters recount the Lord causing Balaam to bless Israel from the mountain cliffs of Peor above. And now the camera sort of pans down to the valley of Peor below where Israel was encamped about to cross the Jordan into the promised land. The Lord has shown great faithfulness and determination to bless Israel. It's possible that Israel was unaware of any of this going on with God and Balaam, but more likely they were very aware of the blessing that was being spoken over them. How would they respond down in the valley? Listen to God's word from Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. The Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, And followed the Israelite into his tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. 
The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. The Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Peor and their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of Peor. We see in this passage a shocking betrayal. The irony of the event is shocking. Over the past two chapters, Balaam has visited the sacred sites of the Baal of Peor on the mountain overlooks, but was unable to change the Lord's blessing on his people to a curse. And then in the Peor Valley, Israel abandons the Lord, renouncing his blessing and exposing themselves to judgment. It's a similar feel to what happened way back at Mount Sinai. As Moses is up on the mountaintop, the mountaintop experience of being in God's presence and receiving the law, the covenant at Sinai, what were the people doing down at the foot of the mountain? Fashioning a golden calf, abandoning the Lord, abandoning his blessings and exposing themselves to judgment at the exact same time the Lord is determining to bless them. So we see the shocking betrayal. And again, verses one through three of our passage tell us that the men of Israel began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The problem isn't just the sexual immorality, but its connection to idolatry. To be sure, idolatry can lead to sexual immorality and sexual immorality can lead to idolatry. Here, the worship of the Baal gods were connected to the fertility cult religion. The idea was that in order to encourage the gods to make your fields fertile for the harvest, you engaged in sexual fertile activity, an easy connection, and certainly makes for an attractive religion. Verse 3 summarizes the atrocity of the sin. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The NIV translates that a little softly. The more literal translation says that uh, they yoked themselves to Baor. And so the Lord's anger burned against them. All right, there's a number of names and places here, so it's important to keep them straight. The nations who are involved are Moab and Midian. Back in chapter 22, we see that Moab and Midian are in league together against Israel. Balak is that cursed, crazy king of Moab at that time who appeals to the leaders of Midian. And Balak sends the leaders of Moab and the leaders of Midian together to go and recruit Balaam, the, the uh, mad money prophet, to speak a curse over Israel. The region of land where this event actually takes place is that area of the land known as Peor. 
the mountain top above the mountain uh, of Peor, and then the valley below where Israel's encamped is Peor. So the land is Peor, the nations are Moab and Midian, and the gods are the Baals. Balaam is not actually mentioned in this chapter, but his name is going to pop up again in connection to this in chapter 31, where we read, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor. And so Balaam is the one who's making this happen. He's pulling the strings. He knows what he's doing. In fact, as we read last week from Revelation 2.14, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Having failed to curse Israel by his own divination techniques, Balaam came up with a different plan to entice Israel to abandon God by worshiping the Baals that they might bring a curse upon themselves. Yes, there are people always tempting believers to abandon the Lord. And yes, we are all too easily enticed to abandon the Lord. What is the most important of the Ten Commandments? In most surveys, people invariably rank, you shall not kill, as the most important. And they rank as the least important commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. In our culture that increasingly embraces humanism, the things that offend or hurt other people are seen as far more important than what we choose to believe or not believe about God. But there's a reason that the first commandment is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It is disobedience to that first commandment that leads to all the others. Our relationship with others flows from our relationship with God. And if there is no transcendent being who is the standard of right and wrong, then everything really is personal preference. But if there is a transcendent being, then our right relationship with him is primary and all pretenders to his throne must be rejected. This is what the Apostle Paul has in mind in Romans 1.18 when he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. The suppression of truth about God leads to all manner of wickedness, as we see in the following verses from Romans 1. But the root sin is the refusal to worship God. That's why we are so concerned for those who stop coming to worship the Lord with the church on the Lord's day. It isn't that we just want to say that we have really good worship attendance. It isn't that we think worship is good works that merit us favor. It is the fact that refusal to worship God opens us to worship other gods and to engage in all manners of wickedness. Now, certainly there are people that can come to church every Sunday, week after week, and still fail in all kinds of ways. There's also a difference between coming to church and coming to worship. That's why we think it's so important to prepare for worship even before we come into this place that we might then come into the presence of the holy God 
to worship the Lord in reverence and in awe and in spirit and in truth. Anything less exposes us to temptation and misery. So earlier in the service, we affirmed the biblical truth summarized in the larger catechism that some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And then we affirm that what makes some sins more heinous is when the offense is immediately against God, his attributes and worship, or when it happens on the Lord's day or other times of divine worship. In scripture, we see that some sins meet with far greater judgment and punishment than others. The Lord treats sins differently. Certainly they all need equally to be atoned in Jesus, but some sins are more egregious. And so that takes us to a troubling part of this passage of a failure to discipline. The Lord's anger is already provoked, but things get worse because of the failure of Moses to do what the Lord commanded. Look again at verse four carefully. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. What we would expect verse five to say is that Moses did exactly that. Do we not regularly read that kind of repetition in the Bible. The Lord commands something, and then this command is exactly obeyed word for word. In fact, it makes the Bible readings sometimes seem boring because they're just reading this repetition. But the point in the repetition is to show when God's commands are being followed precisely and when they are not. The command to Moses is not followed. Verse five says, so Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Now, it's easy to miss this because what Moses says makes more sense than what God says. Moses says that those who committed the crime should be put to death. That makes sense, but that's not what God had commanded. God had commanded that the people to be put to death were the leaders of those people. The leaders had failed to lead. They had failed to keep people from worshiping the Baal of Peor. They had failed to keep the people from engaging in this blatant sexual immorality. They knew it was happening and they failed to stop it. God's command to Moses isn't followed, but neither is Moses' command to the leaders. Verse six doesn't tell us that the leaders carried out the punishment. Instead, what we read in verse six is that the sin became even more blatant, even more uh, flagrant. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses and the leaders are at the entrance to the tent of meeting and they're weeping about the sin that has been committed, but also weeping about the discipline that they're supposed to carry out. And their failure to discipline means that the sin continues and becomes more flagrant. Sometime back, I was talking to a teacher, a friend of mine, who shared about a time when they failed to discipline one single student for a dress code violation. And within a couple days, 15 students were now engaged in that same dress code violation. 
It is easy to mistake a lack of discipline as an act of grace, but it isn't. To be sure, there is a wisdom call that we need to to have, not to exact harsh discipline for all sins. Again, the larger catechism gives us some guidance in the realization that God doesn't punish all sin the same way. Mistakes are made. Sins are committed, realized, and repented of without any intervention necessary. However, unrepentant sin, blatant sin, flagrant sin against God and others that others might then follow, that must be disciplined. This is what we do as good parents with our children in our households, or we would quickly see the home turn into a a place of absolute chaos and anarchy, which is unfortunately which happens in too many homes, to everyone's detriment. And so the act of grace is bringing the sin out of darkness into the light, calling it out for what it is, and then we can bring it to the Lord in confession and repentance for forgiveness. But I'm already getting ahead of myself and getting ahead of the passage, which is our tendency. Burke Parsons of Ligonier Ministries tweeted this past week, if you don't believe in God's wrath, you can never really understand God's love. It is easy to jump to God's love, but then we make God's love meaningless because we divorce it from his wrath. R.C. Sproul tells the well-known story about the young zealous man uh, who, not knowing it was R.C. Sproul, asked him, are you saved? And R.C., who was late for an appointment, simply replied, yes. But it got him to thinking, saved from what? And he went on to write that book entitled, Saved from What? We are saved from God himself. We are saved from his wrath by his grace. If you don't believe in God's wrath, you can never really understand God's love. It's why our worship service is designed the way it is, roughly following the prayer acronym ACTS, ACTS, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We begin with a call to worship and a hymn of praise and a prayer of adoration so that we first come into the presence of the holy God. If we do not, the rest of the worship is hindered. It's also why in our prayer life, our prayer life often becomes more shallow, where we're tempted to go right to prayers of supplication. Dear God, here's some stuff that I want, amen. If you really want to radically change your prayer life, begin every prayer with at least one sentence of praise for who God is. Not thanking God for what he does, but praising God for who he is. Almighty God, you are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You are the holy God enthroned on high. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You are omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. You are creator, redeemer, sustainer. Search the scriptures. The Psalms are a good place to start for words and phrases and images of who God is. Read rich doctrinal books that flesh out the fullness of how God is revealed throughout the scriptures. The Puritans did this as well as any. In fact, Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote, God is the sweetest friend, but the worst enemy. He knew this because he had spent time in the presence of God in his fullness. 
When we come into the presence of the holy God, we become aware of our own sinfulness. And that's why our worship service then moves from this time of adoration to a time of confession. This morning we did a a responsive confession of Psalm 106 that traces through so many failures of God's people in the wilderness. As we've been reading in this book of Numbers, the responsive reading of Psalm 106 actually omitted verses 28 through 31, which directly address what we're reading about this morning. Those verses say this, Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Right there in Psalm 106. Our confession of sin is always followed by an assurance of pardon in the gospel. But this, of course, necessitates a right understanding of the gospel in its fullness. The gospel is not simply, Jesus died for you. It starts with God. God, sin, and Christ's response. That God created us to glorify and enjoy him. God created all things perfectly and created us to glorify and enjoy him. But it was our fall into sin that corrupted that good creation and put us into a state of sin and misery. But God in his goodness did not leave us in that state of sin and misery, but he was pleased to send his own son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that we failed to live. And by his death and resurrection, those who put their trust in him are indeed saved. And if we then respond to Christ and his offer of salvation, that we are indeed forgiven and begin to be restored, that we might glorify and enjoy God now and into eternity as God has created us to do. So the gospel begins with God, and then we become aware of our sin such that we cry out for Christ. Psalm 106 does the same thing and ends by having us cry out for salvation. And salvation received because of God's mercy and grace leads us to thanksgiving and receiving more of God's word as we're doing now in worship so that we might then bring right prayers of intercession and supplication. So having all that, we need to understand all of that in order to understand the uncomfortable atonement made by Phineas. This grandson of Aaron the priest stands up while Moses and all the other leaders are sitting at the tent of meeting the old leadership failing to discipline. And Phineas takes a spear in his hand and walks right into the tent where the Israelite man and Midianite woman are consummating their heinous relationship. And he drives a spear right through the two of them together. Now this is perhaps even more shocking to our modern sensitivities than the sin that necessitated it. This act of faithfulness by Phineas puts an end to a plague that had taken the lives of 24,000. The Lord affirms this act of Phineas. He affirms it to Moses, who had failed to discipline. Verse 13, he and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. And the word atonement that's there is the ordinary word for atonement. The work of atonement was ordinarily to kill an animal in place of those who ought to be killed for their disobedience. A lamb or ram or a bull was usually sacrificed and people placed their hands 
on the animal to say, this animal will die in my place, though it is me that deserves death because of my sin. That's atonement. In this case, Phineas, the faithful priest, killed one man and woman as atonement for all who should have died. Now, to be clear, this is not an invitation for any of us to take matters into our own hands and start killing sinners. Phineas is not acting as a private citizen executing God's judgment. Phineas was in charge of the Levites. Remember that the main job of the Levites was to guard the sanctuary and to guard the community against defilement. Defending the sanctity of the camp was at the top of Phineas's job description. In that, Phineas points us to Jesus, who was also zealous for God's honor. In John 2, we read about Jesus driving out those who had turned the temple into a marketplace. And his disciples recalled Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. It was zeal for God that had consumed Jesus to drive out those sinners. But it was the same zeal for God's glory that drove Jesus to the cross. There, instead of taking a spear to pierce guilty sinners deserving death, God pierced his own innocent son in our place. Through his death, Jesus made atonement for all his people. And so in Numbers 25, Israel showed peor judgment. And as a result, there was peor judgment. We continue to show poor judgment today. The ultimate result was for the ultimate judgment to take place at the cross of Christ. God's wrath fully poured out on Jesus for our sake. Now, this doesn't mean that we're just supposed to see and read Numbers 25 and say, well, thank God for Jesus. See you next week. Earlier in the service, we read from 1 Corinthians 10, which says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. And these, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Numbers 25 warns us about the danger of idolatry, the danger of sexual immorality, Numbers 25 warns us about the danger of refusing to worship the Lord. Numbers 25 warns us of the danger of sin. In the words of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Numbers 25 warns us not to jump over the truth, the wages of sin is death, to go immediately to the gift of God as eternal life in Christ Jesus. The second part becomes shallow if the first part is ignored. Be warned that you may worship the triune God in his majesty and in his mercy. And may the truth set us free. Amen.